Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. That's right, we brought you the best sports media app. Now we're bringing you the best sports book and casino. Now live in Ontario, the Score Bet offers a safe and secure mobile sportsbook experience with both pregame and in-play markets. But best of all, it's integrated into the Score and our content to give you the easiest and most seamless sports betting experience. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Ontario only. Must be 19 years of age or older to participate. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600. What up and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond and I'm joined for this Game 3 reaction pod by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on, Wolf? Huh? Not too much. It is uh, my birthday today. And Happy birthday. Thank you very much. Uh, I can think of, you know, only a few ways that I would prefer to spend it than sitting here with you yucking it up about the NBA Finals. We had a pretty you're interesting a game li- last you're night. A, you're a better liar than Donovan Mitchell. I said only a few. I mean, right. I could I could count them on... Two hands, probably. Right. Uh, no, in all honesty, it's uh, it's great to be here talking with you about the NBA Finals because we had, I thought, a really interesting game last night where, you know, the series swung back to Boston. I think, I mean, look, you you were sticking with your Warriors and Six prediction after we talked following the first two games. I was sticking with Warriors and Seven. So, obviously, we were both expecting that Boston was going to get at least one of these two games. I will put it to you as someone who has, you know, been more confidently picking the Warriors in this series than I have. Did you see anything in that game that changed your mind? Or, you know, you obviously expected Boston to get one of these games, but did the way in which it happened rattle you at all in terms of your confidence in Golden State? Um, Because for the most part, I mean, look, there was obviously that barrage in the third quarter from mainly Steph Curry playing against Boston's drop coverage, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But apart from that, like it was fairly decisive in the Celtics' favor. So what are you feeling coming out of that game three? What stood out to you? And where do we go from here? I wouldn't say I'm rattled as someone who picked the Warriors, but I think it's always impressive to me when a team dominates against another good team for as long as the Celtics did of that game blow it, but then recover to beat them anyway. You know, like to me, like that is the sign of, it's a one game sample in a, in what could be a seven game series. So it's obviously not the be all end all in determining that the Celtics are the better team, but that is often the sign of, you know, team A being better than team B when they can be the better team from the majority of the night. And then even after squandering the lead, they can kind of hold the fort, regroup, get back to what they do and just hold the team off anyway. Right. As opposed to one of those games where say, the Warriors have that barrage, get back in the game, briefly take the lead on a step three, and then run away with it. Obviously, that's not what happened. In terms of a big takeaway, and I know we're going to talk about a lot of the more minor things and um, schematic things and strategy things and all that, but if you're asking me for like a big takeaway from this game, it's hard not to come away from that game. Again, all the small sample size caveats be damned, but it's hard not to come away from that game. Maybe not saying, okay, the Celtics are just better, but the Celtics are the bigger, fast, like more athletic team. 
And that is a challenge to overcome for the Warriors. I, you know, I picked them to win it. I'm not going back on that. I think they can overcome it. I still think they are the better overall team. But, I mean, the Celtics are doing a pretty damn good job trying to convince me otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I never thought the Warriors were the better team. Like, you know this, right? We, we've talked throughout the playoffs. And even before this matchup was set, I kind of had Boston at the top of my power rankings. Like, I felt like they were better. I, the reason I picked the Warriors was... I mean, there was an element of trust that I felt in them that I hadn't felt in Boston with some of the some of the offensive droughts that we've seen from them in the playoffs. But more than that, I just felt like they were a little bit hobbled and Golden State was healthier and playing better and maybe just sort of peaking at the right time. I don't know what the health status of the principal players in this series is going to be moving forward. Like this could all be moot if Steph can't be Steph after that collision with Al Horford and was it in the fourth quarter last night? Where yeah, I think it was, I think it was in the fourth. Yeah, so uh, there was some sort of ominous messaging from Steve Kerr after the game about, you know, we'll know more tomorrow. It seemed like Steph was probably going to go for some imaging. By the time this is published, who knows? We might have more information about that. But it seems plausible that he could be playing in a diminished state from here on out, right? So that's, I mean, if that's the case, then I don't want to say this is a wrap, but obviously that's massive advantage to Boston but on a smaller scale I just think and we talked about this in our last pod the health of Robert Williams is so crucial and we really saw that in game three and I think what's going to be very interesting is seeing with like the quick turnaround only one day off between game three and four like we said that's the only point in this series in which that's the case can he replicate that performance in game four? Because the rest definitely seemed to do him good. He looked like a completely different player in game three. I thought that totally changed the shape of this game. And when the game was starting to get away from Boston, him coming in at the start of the fourth quarter and his ability to execute the pick and roll coverage that the Celtics want to execute against Steph, where he is up at the level of the screen, but is able to get back. And whether it's to take away the role, whether it's just to like play between two guys and kind of keep Steph in contact a little bit without totally losing touch with the role man, without having to put the Celtics in rotation, they can sort of still play it two on two for the most part without him like being in a deep drop, but also, you know, without him totally selling out on Curry's pull-up jumper. Like he was able to execute that so much better than Al Horford was in game three. And I just, I mean, that was, I think a massive, a a massive factor in the Celtics being able to like get back on track defensively in the fourth quarter. The Warriors scored 11 points in the fourth quarter. And part of that was in a couple instances, they actually did sell out a little bit more and just like put two on the ball and get it out of his hands. They forced him into a couple turnovers, but I don't think any any of that's really possible without Robert Williams's energy and his activity and his ability to 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 be up and get back to crack back and get rebounds right like rebounding was a huge battleground in this game that the Celtics decisively won and he he played an enormous part in that so you know we even we talked last episode like the, the Warriors were attacking him and trying to make him uncomfortable but even in his hobbled state I felt like his rim deterrence had been pretty massive when he'd been on the floor. He just hadn't been on the floor all that often. And a lot of time when he he had been on the floor, he'd been, you know, out by the three-point line. 
so that was huge. And and I think, yeah, whether he can replicate that in game four, will have a lot to say about whether the Warriors can level this thing up. His presence just gives the Celtics such a size advantage in this series, in this matchup in particular. And like you mentioned the rebounding, I was talking about it, how through the first two games, the, the Warriors continued offensive rebounding push, which they've kind of had throughout the playoffs, had massively helped them in the first two games of this series. Game three, the, ga- the game where Robert Williams plays more than ever and looks more like himself than any other game in this series, the Celtics' defensive rebound rate goes up to 84% after being 71% through the first two games. Obviously pretty massive. I mean, they took care of the ball too. There are other factors, but his ability to look a little more like himself or a lot more like himself in that game was huge for me and part of what I was saying at the beginning when I was talking about how it it's very evident that the Celtics at their best are like the bigger, faster, more athletic team. Robert Williams is the bigger in that. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about that is he's actually not just in terms of sheer size, right? He's six foot eight. Right. And I remember like discovering that a couple years ago and being gobsmacked that he was only six foot eight because he is so long and he plays above the rim. Like so like he's just in the air all the time both because of like how high he can jump, but just how frequently he can jump. Like, I think we've talked about his, his second jump ability on the podcast before and just like how impressive that is. But like, it seems like he's so much larger than he is because of how often he is in the right. air and like couple that with his wingspan. And it's just like, he might as well be seven feet tall. Like effectively, right. that's how much space he takes up. Yeah, he plays big. He doesn't give them a height advantage. But he does give them like a, a size advantage because he plays a, a vertical than, advantage. Yes, he gives them a vertical advantage because he he plays bigger than anyone else on the court in the in this matchup, other than maybe Kevon Looney, which I think is something we can talk about as well. I know you tweeted yeah. it, and I was sitting there thinking the same thing. But like, but this is also Kevon. my point, right? Like Kevon Looney is six foot nine, but he doesn't get off the ground, right? You but know, what I'm dr- saying is, in terms of in terms of at least like the. I agree with you that Robert Williams plays bigger than Kevon Looney or vertically plays, you know, higher, if you will, than Kevon Looney. But I think if you're looking at guys in this matchup or from the Warriors side that can come the closest to matching the size with which Robert Williams plays with, it's Looney. And I thought in a game, especially where Draymond was as ineffective as I've ever seen him in a finals game, maybe in a playoff game, like he was just awful after that great game two performance. And he was, he wasn't that great defensively. Like, it was just an awful Draymond game all around. I thought in a game where Draymond was that ineffective, in a game where Robert Williams was impacting it the way he was, I didn't really understand not trying to see what it looked like out there with Looney for a longer stretch because it ended up, I think he played 16, 17 minutes. And if there was a game in this series, and I guess, I mean, we don't know what the future holds, but if there was a game in this series through the first three games that looked like it had Looney's name written all over it based on the way things were going both for the Warriors, but also for the Celtics. It was this one. And I was just perplexed that he didn't play more. Like they went smaller at one point. Like when Draymond fouled out, I think they brought Iguodala in. Like I thought, okay, they're going to bring Looney in now and try to try to match size with Williams, but they didn't. They just kept trying to go small. Yeah. I, I didn't get that. Like I would have, I would have understood putting a more offensively minded player in there with Draymond coming out because they did have to make up a deficit. And I could understand them at least being like, you know, we're, we're selling out on offense. That's how we're going to try and make this comeback. But Iguodala is not doing anything more for you offensively than Looney is. So at that point I didn't really get it. And yeah, I definitely thought he should have played more. I mean, it's worth noting, like he wasn't especially effective when he did play in that game. And 
I think with him on the floor, the Warriors defensive rebounding rate was like 55%. It was embarrassingly bad even when he was out there. So I don't know that that necessarily would have made the difference, but I think he deserves a longer leash. I think he's been a really important player for the Warriors throughout this postseason run. And yeah, I think in a game where they were sort of being out physicaled and looked a little bit overwhelmed by Boston's size at times that he could have helped um, and ought to have played more than 16 minutes. But uh, it was, there were a lot of different ways that I felt like Boston leveraged the size and physicality advantage in that game. And, you know, a big part of it was they were just so much better about attacking Steph. And, you know, I thought like a kind of tone setting possession pretty early in the game was when smart got him on a switch and immediately took him into the post and no help came. Like, you know, I don't think the warriors are going to send help on a Marcus smart post up, but he gets pretty deep position and is able to hit a short turnaround jumper. And I think smarts aggressiveness, like that helped tag Steph with a couple of the early fouls that I feel like changed the tenor of the game. And once he was in foul trouble, I feel like the Celtics just amped it up in terms of like finding him, attacking him. And crucially, they were just going quickly. You know what I mean? Like in, in game two, when they struggled to bust those switches, like whether it was Steph or Poole, like they didn't do a great job of, of attacking the mismatches when Golden State was conceding the switch. And I think a lot of that came down to they were just taking too long. And I think, you know, we talked about it like, Maybe they were just a little bit thrown that the Warriors were actually giving that switch. And so that slowed down the processing a little bit and the decision making and everything just happened slower. And that was allowing the Warriors to set up their help so that Boston couldn't really exploit those mismatches in the way that you think they otherwise might be able to. And there was none of that in this game three. Like they were going fast, fast, fast when they got the switches they wanted. And I think with the Warriors playing small, for the, you know, a huge portion of this game, they made a point of going to the basket early and often. You know, there's just not a ton of rim protection. You know, and, and you can see this too, like like there is a trade-off. Um, and, and they mixed it up a bit, like Draymond wasn't guarding Jalen Brown for the entire game. They were moving him around a bit. But when he's guarding Jalen Brown, like as much as I said on the last episode, like he's great at kind of m- navigating that balance between being the on-ball guy on Jalen, but also finding the opportunities to help without getting burned too badly for it. But it still does make it more difficult for him to be an impact defender at the rim when he has to worry about Jalen Brown off of the ball. And I thought, especially with how quickly the Celtics were attacking, they weren't meeting a whole lot of resistance at the rim. And that's how you get them scoring, you know, 52 points in the paint compared to 26 for Golden State and being plus nine in free throw attempts and all that like you look at up and down the stat sheet and you can see the ways in which they dictated terms in which their size and physicality played up like doubled them up on on paint points plus 15 in shooting possessions between the offensive rebounding and the turnover differential uh and that was the game right there because in terms of like like just sheer shot making it was pretty much dead level yeah, in terms of the the quicker decision making, Jalen Brown has been really impressive to me throughout the series. Actually, in terms of that quick decision, like Jason Tatum's gotten a lot of love for the playmaking in this series, and I think he deserves it because at times when his shot has abandoned him in this series, he's still kept their offense afloat with his playmaking, and I think that's been huge for the Celtics. But Jalen Brown for me has been 
fantastic as maybe not like as a pure playmaker in the sense of his assists or whatever, but in terms of just the decisions he's making with the ball in his hand. And this is a guy that has been criticized as recently as this season for some of his decision-making. And I know a lot of that is, is more to do with his handle, which isn't necessarily the tightest and it leads to a lot of turnovers and his decision-making in general almost feels like it's improved from the conference finals to now. Like he's through three games. I thought for the most part made the right decision with the ball in his hands more often than not almost all the time. And even like in game one, there was that stretch uh, late in the third quarter, early in the fourth, kind of like before Horford and smart and white got hot with their shot. The Warriors had the advantage, but he was keeping the Celtics in it and within arm's reach not just with his scoring, but also with his decision-making. And I thought game three, again, he was doing it. So you mentioned the quicker decision-making in game three. And I think Jalen Brown's actually one guy that's been pretty level on that front throughout the three games. And then in terms of them being quicker, taking advantage of the advantages. And and I was mentioning Steph. Yeah. When you talk about them getting to the rim, like there were multiple times in this game where Tatum, especially, but a few other guys, but usually Tatum, recognized the mismatch on Steph like instantly and it was at the perimeter and he just absolutely bullied him all the way from the perimeter to the hoop and scored easily Marcus Smart even did it to him a couple times um it was not surprising but pretty jarring if you're a Warriors fan or look the Warriors watching it where it's like the second that that mismatch happened they were just absolutely punishing Steph and moving him from the three-point line all the way to under the hoop and scoring on him pretty easily. Yeah, and I mean, look, I, th- I thought, you know, the game two thing wasn't just on the Celtics, like not being decisive enough. That was part of it. Steph also had a really good defensive game, which he didn't in game three, and I think the foul trouble played into that. But the Celtics were definitely smarter about it. Like, you know, Horford even like got him a couple times on early seals with cross matches in transition, like easy stuff like that, low hanging fruit that they should always be looking to pick. And they, they just, they nailed all that stuff in game three, I thought, and their offense looked so, so much better. Um, and again, like that goes back to what we were saying, where like the, the adjustments on offense were all just like pretty simple stuff. And a lot of them just came down to like play better, execute this stuff better. It's not like big tactical overhauls or anything like that. And, you know, to your point about Jalen Brown, I definitely thought like he set the tone coming out right away where he was attacking Draymond, like just going right at him, you know, showing that he was not afraid of that dude and was able to beat him off of the bounce or draw help and made some really good passes. And I, I, you know, to your point about the handle, look, it's uh, still overall, I guess, a, a bit of a concern. Like you don't want your your secondary what would you call him? Like, is he their secondary? He's not their secondary ball handler, you know, because he's, he's I would say scorer, right? He's like their secondary option, but they're what tertiary, <laughs> their tertiary ball handler. Yeah. yeah. Um. So yeah, it's not ideal for his handle to be as loose as it is, but I thought it was tighter in this game than it had been. And there was, you know, I don't know if you remember this one possession where he just went at Draymond off of the bounce. And not only did he beat Draymond, but, Gary Payton II, who was guarding Marcus Smart on the wing, came in with like a pretty aggressive dig on that drive. And Brown protected the ball, like picked up his dribble just past the free throw line and was able to take it in and, and hit a layup over Draymond. It's like beating both of those guys with hands in his dribbling avenues 
and obviously a really, really good one-on-one -on -one defender trying to prevent him from, from getting to the bucket. Uh, and he scored anyway. Like I just, him coming out and having the first quarter that he had was enormous in terms of just like getting Boston that cushion, getting them comfortable and confident to start. And this was, you know, obviously one of his best games of the playoffs and maybe his most important. So definitely hats off to him. In terms of stuff the Warriors can do better, like obviously Draymond will be better than he was in this game. Like I, I think you can say that it's concerning. And I've said this before, like you, you go up against a defense that is as locked in as the Celtics defense is. And we saw this in the Memphis series. Once John Morant went out and like how connected and locked in that defense was Draymond becomes an offensive liability, man, because a lot of the handoff actions, like the stuff that he is able to do when the ball swings to him and he's not looking at the rim and he still manages to like, turn the possession into something because of his passing and what the Warriors can do around him off of the ball. A lot of that falls by the wayside when you have like a team that can either get around screens as well as the Celtics do, or is just so connected with their switching that they're not conceding any of those creases that the Warriors typically feast on. And then suddenly a lot of these possessions just grind down to like Draymond holding the ball, not looking at the rim, not knowing what to do with it and getting completely ignored when he's off the ball. And, I, you know, frankly, I think a big part of the reason that Looney didn't get a lot of run in that game is like their offense couldn't function with both of those guys on the floor. And I don't know. I mean, like, I guess you could use hindsight and say, well, maybe Looney should have been the guy who stayed on the floor rather than Draymond. But Steve Kerr's not going to make that decision. Like, he like he's been through a lot with Draymond, like, He's going to ride him, you know, he's going to ride with him through the ups and downs and trust him in these spots more than he's going to trust Kevon Looney. And I think that's fine, even if sometimes it's going to burn him. Like, I don't have any problem with that being the decision making process, but they need to find ways to make him less of a liability on offense so that they can play those two guys together more often so that their offense can can function more effectively. That's going to be a big thing, but but he'll be better. And I also think. Look, like they they don't have to be switching with Steph as often as they are, I don't think, defensively. Like there was one possession where Tatum got him in the fourth quarter where Tatum was actually the screener in pick and roll. It was Marcus Smart who was running it. And the Warriors switched it when I think it's like that should be an automatic under, right? Like Steph should just go under that and stay with Smart rather than switching on to Tatum in that scenario. That's just easy stuff. Uh, there was another one where... Like the Celtics ran double drag action where the initial screener, I can't remember if, if it was Horford or Rob Williams, but it was Looney's guy who set the initial screen and they didn't switch that one. Like Steph w like fought through that one and then switched the second one. So he wound up on Tatum where it's like, yeah, instead if, of a if, guy. if they had just switched the first one, then it would have been Looney on Tatum. And I, I feel much more comfortable with Looney switched on to Tatum than with Steph. So I think like stuff like that, they can do better defensively and will do better defensively, I think, moving forward. I wonder if we see just like less of the soft switching from them because, yeah, it worked in game two, but I feel like Boston has sort of found the answers to that as we expected they would. So um, they can make those adjustments. I guess, you know, at the other end of the floor, can we talk about about Boston's defensive coverages? Like what? Yeah, because we were, we, we were talking about this off air last night. And I agree with you that it is very clearly by design. The only way it wasn't by design is if Al Horford was so gassed 
that he failed to get up on screens for Curry like five possessions in a row. Like he basically would have, the only way this wasn't by design is if Al Horford screwed up like five times in a row in game three of a tied final series, which I refuse to believe. So we can then deduce just like we did in game one, that this was the plan that the Celtics determined the, what the least damaging option was conceding space to Steph Curry on screening actions and having Horford or whoever kind of play a, not a full drop, but somewhat of a drop. Enough of a drop where Steph can step into some decent open threes time and time again. And it it didn't end up burning them on the final score, obviously. The Celtics won this game, but it did burn them at one point. And it, you know, the biggest kind of chickens coming home to roost moment was when Horford had continued to drop and then was so late recovering that he ends up fouling Steph on a three-pointer that Curry makes that also gets called for a flagrant for not uh, allowing a guy landing space. And it's funny to say that happened on a possession where the Celtics were dropping because it's like, oh, if you're dropping, how are you in his landing space? But it was because of like a, he had dropped and then it was a, an oh shit moment and a delayed reaction where he then tried to get out and contest it. But that ended up in what a seven-point possession after an offensive rebound after the free throw. Like, it, it could have been disaster for the Celtics. And had this game gone the other way, I think a lot of people would have, and rightly so, pointed to this kind of perplexing, inexplicable drop coverage against the greatest shooter and shooting backcourt ever. So, like, what are your thoughts? And again, I know we talked off air. I know, like I said, you're of the belief. It's just kind of they believe that's the the least worst option. Yeah, my question is and even after a game the Celtics won my question is how in God's name is the least bad option giving the greatest shooter ever pretty open looks at three like the alternative is one maybe giving up some four on threes or like whatever like and giving up some easier buckets I get it but Steph is one of the few guys in the world where I might almost give up an easier look at the basket than give him an open three well I don't like the the plan like the scheme is not designed to give Steph Curry wide open pull up threes like that's not the idea that's going to happen as a side effect of the scheme but that's not actually what they're trying to do that's sort of like that's the worst outcome of what they're trying to do and I think they're willing to live with that as the worst outcome of what they're trying to do rather than okay like if we're blitzing Steph it's a four on three every time and I think they they feel, and you know, not necessarily wrongly, that that's ultimately going to produce worse outcomes for them than the handful of times when the screen defense isn't up to touch, or the you know on ball defender isn't staying attached going over the screen, and Steph's walking into those threes. Like I, I it's tough because you see where the Warriors are setting those screens for Steph, and to have Al Horford come up like 35 feet from the basket, you risk a lot. Like you risk Steph turning the corner and blowing by him going downhill. And then you're in deep trouble because not only is it a numbers advantage, but it's also Steph Curry handling the ball and not, you know, Kavon Looney or Draymond Green or whoever is screening for him. You risk that. Uh, or, you know, if it's if it's a straight blitz, blitz and he's able to slip the pocket pass, then again, like we, we know what the Warriors are capable of in a four on three scenario. And I've said, like, I think they should be more willing to live with some of that than they have been because their defense is really good, really connected, really long. Like they 
uh, should be capable of scrambling to the extent that the non-Steph Curry Warriors can't burn them too badly. But I don't think the idea of we want to try and play these pick and rolls two on two is totally wrongheaded. And when it works, it works like gangbusters. And, you know, we can look at this game and say, like, Steph Curry had this massive third quarter explosion, but the Warriors also had like a, I don't know, 107 offensive rating for the game overall. Like, that's really, really good news for Boston if they can continue to hold them that low. So obviously, we're going to focus on the times when it really didn't work. And I don't think I don't think they were executing it the way that they actually want to execute it during that third quarter stretch. And to your point about Horford maybe being gassed, like I don't think it's right to say he messed it up, you know, five times in a row. But I think you might be able to say, and we definitely saw the difference when a fresher Rob Williams came in in the fourth quarter. We saw the difference, like what it looks like when those two guys were executing what I think was designed to be a pretty similar coverage where he was up higher and was better able to retreat where whether it was because he was gassed or because he's 36 years old, you know, Al Horford is not really able to do that. He's more comfortable hanging back a little bit further and trusting the on-ball defender a little bit more. So I don't know. Like, I think it's pretty clear they're not going to change this coverage. Like, we're not going to see them come out in game four just blitzing Steph. That's not going to happen. This is the base that they have settled on for this matchup. I think for the most part, you could say it's it's worked relatively well. And while Steph has gotten cooking against that coverage at a lot of different points, it's done a pretty good job of holding the rest of the Warriors in check. And I think at the end of the day, like that's the thing you have to focus on is like, you're not trying to stop one guy. You're trying to stop a team. And I don't think, you know, like, even when we were texting off air, I said, I don't necessarily agree that doing this over and over again is the right approach. Like, I think they should be willing to mix it up more, be willing to live with some four on threes a little bit more. But I don't think it's decided. Like, I feel like the jury is still out on whether or not this is actually the right approach because we've seen it go bad, but we've seen it go well also. And I kind of think, I don't know, I give credit to Boston's coaching staff for sticking to their guns in that regard. Like here they are with a two, one series lead. Like it's for sure. Like the, the fact that they're up right now, it's very much one of those things. Like we can talk about it and they can just say scoreboard. Like it, I get that, but I'll also say there have been plenty of times over the course of basketball and sport, like NBA and sports history, not just the basketball thing where an adjustment not made earlier in the series or a stubbornness to stick with something earlier in the series that gets maybe overlooked because a team is up in the series ends up coming back to bite. Like it, it's happened before, right? Where a team, whether it's a lineup related thing or whatever, or a schematic thing where you think, okay, well, we're still up two one, whatever it is. And then, you know, you blink and now you're down three, two because of that error in judgment. Yeah. So look, I think that that's true. Uh, and being proactive, you know, is generally better than being reactive in the NBA playoffs. But I think, you know, okay, so even forgetting about Steph, like the Warriors have played into the Celtics' hands in a lot of cases with some of the other guys who aren't able, like Jordan Poole is the one that I will spotlight, who they're dropping against him and he's been really indecisive, doesn't really know what to do in terms of attacking that drop. And when Steph has been off the floor, like it's been a, a huge problem. You know, they 
their offense has stalled out on multiple occasions because of his indecisiveness against that coverage. So I just want to point out that it's that it's really worked in a lot of cases and in a lot of different ways. And even from a process perspective, again, I don't think it's like so backwards or so wrongheaded. So again, uh, I think I would I would not hate seeing them like just mix it up a little bit more, like throw some more ball pressure, some more blitzes in there. But I don't know. I mean, like I if they haven't changed it now after like seeing some of some of the like heaters that Steph has gone on, what is going to make them change it? And I don't think I don't think anything. No, they're sticking with it. But definitely we talked about it last episode, like pool really needs to be better. Like it's on both ends. Well, yeah, he's not going to be better on defense, so he (laughs) needs to be better on offense. That's really all it comes down to. Um, so yeah, look, I, what, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen in game four? You see the Warriors evening it up or? I do. Yeah. I think they even it up. Okay. So if you had to point to something where it's like, this is what's going to swing it back in the other direction. What's that one thing? I think Draymond will be great again in game four. I just like what he did defensively in game two. I mean, it wasn't surprising anyone. It's Draymond Green, but he really controlled that game. I thought defensively Mm -hmm. and was weirdly invisible on the defensive end in game three. And I, I can't see that repeating itself. And if Draymond is, he doesn't have to be what he was in game two, but if he's just Draymond Green defensively, I think the Warriors defense looks a lot better and less out of sorts than it did in game three. And I think from there, you just kind of let the offense take care of itself because between Steph and I know Clay's not consistent anymore, but between Steph and what Clay has shown at times in the series and what pool was in game two? Like, there's still very much a recipe there for the Warriors to win as long as the defense is somewhat taken care of by Draymond. Yeah. And I think that will happen in game four because I refuse to believe he will be that defensively invisible two games in a row in the friggin' NBA finals. Yeah, Clay is the opposite of consistent at this point. And it's, it's yeah. so funny to think that for the longest time, like, his people took to calling him the metronome because of how consistent he was. And now he's like, the opposite of that his highs are still really high like he can still look like peak clay uh, as he did for stretches of that game three but his lows are also very very low so he's more like the pendulum than the metronome at this point and the warriors have to hope that that swing remains on you know the right side of the ledger in game four because even with a great clay game they weren't able to win that game three so I don't know. I think I think it's going to be a really close game four. Yeah, agreed. And I guess my official prediction would be the Warriors kind of squeaking one out and turning it into a best of three. But I, I certainly wouldn't be shocked if the Celtics managed to take a stranglehold on the series. Do you think Kaminga gets a look at any point? Because like you're talking about the size and athleticism Man, I- and physicality. Like he's the guy that the Warriors sort of haven't dusted off yet that could conceivably close that gap a little bit and i i understand and, and why someone who was getting a chance earlier in the playoffs yeah and like i get why steve kerr would be reluctant to you know kind of unleash him at you know midway through the finals this is a rookie who hasn't gotten a ton of run let alone in high leverage situations like this but i just sort of feel like it's worth the risk when the alternative is playing someone like Igadala, you know yeah. who i just don't think in this matchup is giving them nearly enough to justify playing like roll the dice man like i i just think well this is i I put 
I threw it in our series preview that we threw up on the app last week when I was talking about like Poole being the X factor and, you know, if he can be played off the court defensively or if his minutes are just ineffective and the Warriors decide to go bigger or for some reason in this series they have to go bigger. One of my questions in that preview is like, does Kaminga get a look in the NBA Finals? Like, does Steve Kerr trust him to give them something in the NBA Finals? And through three games, it seems like the answer is no. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wouldn't rule it out going forward and maybe even as early as game four. Like, I, I don't think the book is closed on his rookie season yet, especially the way this series is going. And then, yeah, my last note is just because you touched on, you know, Clay being the pendulum rather than the metronome now and the consistency being gone. Understandably so, given the injuries and the layoff. But again, for the hundredth time, like that's that's why Jordan Poole's so important to this Warriors team because with Clay being as inconsistent as he is, with Wiggins, who, uh, Wiggins has been really good, I think, in this series, defensively especially, but he's had some moments offensively too where I think he's just done his job. Um, but again, you like it's what you can expect night to night offensively from Clay and Wiggins is not consistent secondary production on a title team type stuff, right? And so that's why you need Jordan Poole to be Jordan Poole, at least offensively. And he's been that, I wouldn't even say for one of three games. I think he's been that for like one and a half quarters of three games. And it just so happened to coincide with the Warriors barrage in the third quarter of game two. Yeah. I think it's what you said. You need Jordan Poole to be Jordan Poole, at least offensively. What you actually need from him defensively is for him to not be Jordan right. Poole. That's what I'm saying. You need him to be a Jordan Poole offensively. You'd prefer if he's not on the other end. Um, but yeah, with with no real way around that. Um, I yeah, I, I think look, I, they'll find some defensive answers. I'm quite sure of that. I don't think Boston's offense will be as good as it was in Game Three. I think the Warriors' offense will find a way to be a little bit better, and I think we're going to have a competitive Game Four. So with that, uh, do you have a quick? Fan shout out for us before we get out of here. I do. Fan shout out. This episode goes to, I'm I'm going to assume that the way he wants it read is David Mr. Writer because uh, it's David and then Mr. Writer <clears throat> on Twitter goes by at DM Writer. Uh, says he has been listening since 2018, more consistently since 2019. He is located in Fergus, Ontario, which is just north of Guelph. Says he usually listens when he's detailing cars or on his long commute to work. David came on my radar because shortly after the episode in which I mentioned watching the Leafs lose a Game 7 in the NHL playoffs, well, not watching the Leafs lose a Game 7 in the NHL playoffs because I was the best man in a wedding, David uh, sent a gift, or it was a, it was a video of people at a wedding watching the Leafs lose and tagged me in it and said he heard my rant on the pod and thought of me. So got in touch with him, and we got him the shout-out that he deserves. Well, I, I am really surprised that you gave David a shout out after he rubbed that Leafs loss in your face like that. But I, uh, think, he was more, I think he was more asking commiserating. Was, yeah, I think he was more commiserating with me about it as opposed to rubbing my face in it. But he might have been. Okay, well, thank you, David. Thank you to all our listeners. Until we talk to you next, enjoy the next two games of the finals. We'll be back early next week to recap them. For now, we're signing off. So for Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolfon. Pound the Rock.